All right, take your Bibles this morning, make your way to Mark's Gospel, chapter 5. We're finally out of chapter 4, but Mark is moving along quickly. No, this is verse, now we're, we're going to get through verse 20 today. These are two actually, um, these are two of my favorite accounts in, in, in the historical record. The healing of uh, the demoniac, the area of the Gadarenes, and then the, I, I love the, the account of Jesus healing the woman with the issue of blood on his way to heal uh, Jairus' daughter. Um, so those are our two. So this week we're going to deal with, I, 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 you know, a title is supposed to be memorable, so I just call this Deviled Ham, and maybe you'll understand that as we get into it. So if you're in your Bible, Mark chapter 5, verse number 1, follow along as I read. Then they came to the other side of the sea, and we understand from last week that has great significance, right? To the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, look at this word, here's Mark's word, what is it? Immediately, he's marched fast. Immediately, there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs and no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been pulled apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And ladies, you thought your husband was bad. And always, verse 5, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus, notice this, from where? From afar. So he's far away, but he sees Jesus get off that boat. He ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. Verse 8 sheds a little light. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. And then he asked him, Jesus asked, What is your name? And he answered saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. He also begged him earnestly, that he would not send him out of the country. All this is very significant. Now a large herd of swines was feeding there near the mountains, so all the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we might enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission, and the unclean spirits went out and entered into the swine, about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. You can almost see that in your mind's eye, can't you? Um, those who fed the swine, uh, those, so those who fed the swine fled. So the pigs ran one way and the keepers of the pigs ran the other. And they told it to the city, in a city and in the country. And they, that went, and they went out to see what it was that happened. So in other words, people said, I got to see that from my own eyes. Then they came to Jesus, like the whole area. And they saw the one who had been demon possessed. Now in your Bible you should who had been should be in italics, right? And that's added in there just for the English the, the, the Greek to English translation it makes more sense. But read it this way. They saw the one demon possessed. 
They only knew him as demon-possessed. But Mark is reminding us he's no longer. And he had, um, and had had the legion. Now, here's how they saw him sitting, clothed in his right mind. And now notice this. And they were what? Right. Afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been, there it is again in italics, demon-possessed, and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him, with Jesus, to depart from their region. Amazing, right? And when he had got into the boat, um, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed. This is the man. And began to proclaim in Decapolis all that Jesus had done for him. If you have your own Bible, would you just underline this last phrase, and all marveled. Great, great historical account. So let's jump into this today, and we'll just unpack it section by section. Ray Pritchard, one of my favorite uh, modern-day preachers, just because he's, he's, he's got a beautiful ability to encapsulate sections of Scripture. Here's what he said about this passage today. He said, three worlds meet in this strange account. The underworld of evil spirits, the visible world of human experience, and the upper world of divine control. I love that. Three worlds. I'd say it's a clash of three worlds, wouldn't you? The underworld of evil spirits, the visible world of human experience, and the upper world of divine control. So as this episode opens, we see a legion of demons, a herd of pigs plummeting off a cliff, and a man living in a graveyard on the outskirts of town. These are shocking images at, at best, aren't they? What a strange opening scene. Word after word and sentence after sentence and paragraph after paragraph, it just grips us. This actually happened. So Jesus arrives on the other side of the lake and he's fresh after calming a perilous storm. I'm assuming Jesus probably went back to sleep. And no sooner does the boat get beached and Jesus get off, but Matthew says immediately a severely demonically oppressed or possessed and influenced man comes and throws himself at the feet of Jesus. And, and the text tells us he lived among the tombs in verse 3. That, that was, and there's, no, there's, there's a reason for that. Who, who lives among the tombs? Those who are what? Yeah. Dead. This man was spiritually dead. And he was filled with death. Um, the, his community tried to quiet this disaster of a human life with prison. Didn't work. He could break the chains. He could shatter the shackles. But he could not free his own soul. He was helpless. Verses 3 and 4. With superhuman strength. He would, he would break those bonds in pieces. And he could not, the scripture says, be subdued, verse 4. So, 
he lived among the tombs and in the hills near the cliffs on the east side of a lake. So I should have put a picture up here. I didn't. If you could picture the Sea of Galilee, it's a giant lake. Um, Jesus is doing most of his ministry on, a, on the west-northwest side of that lake where Capernaum is. Um, but he gets in that boat and he says, let's go to the other side. And he travels eastward. And now what's interesting about this spot is that uh, it's the area of the Gadarenes in the province called the Decapolis. Deca meaning ten. Uh, polis, where we get our metropolis from, means city. It was an area of ten major cities, but it was really a province. The deal with this province was that it was, it was predominantly a Gentile province. The Jews didn't have much dealings with that province. And that's where Jesus goes. And this guy is living in the tombs, a picture of his death. And the Bible goes on to tell us that he howled out and screamed out day and night. He cut himself with sharp stones and maybe in an attempt to, to speed his death or, or maybe he was trying to himself release those demons from his body. But can you imagine, this guy would have been somewhat of a legend in the area, wouldn't he? I mean, you'd be telling your little kids, now, fellas, I know you're going out fishing tonight, uh, but remember, that crazy guy is out there, and you're going to hear him screaming, and how, stay away from the crazy man, don't go anywhere near the cemetery. Right? And this guy was powerless to help himself. And it's hard to imagine a description of someone made in God's image that is so obviously in need and seemingly beyond repair. This guy was a disaster of a human being. And I think at this time where you have to say to yourself, I don't know if I know anybody that broken, right? That messed up. Uh, here's the good news. That man and those demons that possessed him were no match for Jesus. They're no match for Jesus whatsoever. And with what seemed like ease, he cleanses the man and drives out this unclean spirit called legion, for there were many, and, and the man is free. Um, he hurls those demons from the man, gives them permission to enter into the swine, and, uh, which numbered about 2,000, which tells you about how many demons were probably in that guy. I mean, this guy was really messed up. And notice what happens. What's the first thing the pigs do and their demons do to the pigs? They, they destroy them, right? They, they literally run off the cliff like lemmings and uh, drown in the ocean. Now, now, I don't know why they did that. Some have surmised that perhaps they did that so that they could then be freed from those pigs and be free in that area to go find a new host, a human host. Um, we don't know for sure. Um, here's the thing. The herdsmen show up and they tell uh, everybody what Jesus had just done. And that sounds a little bit incredible. You know what that means. In is a prefix that means not. Credible means true. So incredible means something that's so crazy that it can't be true. No way. There's no way that happens. So I got to go see it for myself. So it says like the whole area seems to come out and look. As, as they get there, they, they find some things. They find a bunch of dead pigs on the shore. And they find a crazy guy who ran around hollering naked. Um, and his, his body cut to pieces out of his mind. They find that guy, instead of running around, they find him sitting. 
Instead of naked, they find him clothed. Instead of crazy, they find him in his right mind. Isn't that something? So they're, they're, what they're seeing is lining up with the story that they heard. And just like the people had told them, that this, this man from Galilee, which is the, the neighboring province, had actually tamed the tomb-dwelling terrorist. <laughs> this guy was sitting, clothed, and in his right mind. And just like his disciples the night before on the sea were filled, were terrified, the Bible says, filled with great fear, so were these people. The crowds were afraid. And their response is, just, just leave. And that's a weird response. It's hard for us to understand that. I think at the end of the day, he disrupted their way of life and they wanted nothing to do with them. And I, and I just want to hit the pause button there and tell you this. <laughs> just so you know, I believe in truth in advertising. When you come, when you come to Jesus, more importantly, when he comes to you, um, He's going to disrupt your life. Matter of fact, he's going to take ownership of your life. You're going to become his person, his personal property, right? His child, a citizen of his kingdom. And your life's going to be different. There is no gospel in the New Testament that speaks of coming to Jesus and remaining like you were. That gospel is a false one that's preached in pulpits all over Macon, Georgia this morning but not from this one, because I'm going to tell you the truth. Jesus comes to disrupt your life. And if you don't like that, guess what? You're going to do just what those people did and say, you know what, I'll, I'll, I'll do my little tradition over here, but you leave me alone. You go, you go away. And that's what these people asked Jesus to do. But before he leaves, of course, the, the formerly demonic man comes to him and says, hey, let me go with you. And Jesus says, no. He says, instead, go home and tell and tell how much the Lord has done for you. And even though that man wants to go with Jesus, he obeys. By the way, that's the first mark of someone whose life's been touched by Christ, isn't it? We're obedient to his commands. He does what Jesus said, and he goes out the whole region, the Bible says, in verse 20, and he proclaims what great things the Lord had done for him. And Mark's conclusion to the story is very straightforward. I had you underline it. Everyone marveled. I love that. They all marveled. They were all amazed at what had happened. But at the end of the day, and I know it's a longer introduction, the rest of this will go quicker, what are we supposed to see in this episode? And I, and I cautioned you last week um, to be careful what you focus on. There's one focus in the episode on the, on the sea last week, and that was the authority of Jesus, who he was. He's the God of all creation. It's an identity. This one's the same way. Now, this narrative can take us in a lot of different directions, um, and asking a bunch of very interesting questions, such as, how do demons work? Um, how many tortured this man? What was, what was up with Jesus allowing these demons to go into the pigs? Um, was this the first case of devil ham in history? Uh, but I assure you, these are not the reasons that, that Mark recorded the story. So what are we meant to see in this history? What is the focus? What did Mark and the Holy Spirit want us to glean out of this text today in this passage? So those are the questions that are going to guide us in the rest of our time this morning. And I want to point out three emphasis in this passage, starting with the most important, so they kind of go in order. And that order is important. The most important, and I think the main reason, number one, 
is what we call a Christological emphasis. You see the word Christ in there. Christological is a study of Christ. This tells us something about the identity of Jesus. So there's a Christological emphasis. That's the point. Jesus has just proven he's the Lord of the sea. And now he's going to prove he's the Lord of the land as well. That nothing is outside of his reach. So this episode is, is really meant to be a sequel to the episode on the lake. Um, I want you to think about the last sequel you saw, the last movie or book sequel that you saw. Most of them are disappointing, right? Most of them are like, oh, you know, that first one was so much better. Um, sometimes there's a rare occasion. Um, I, I've recently watched, went and saw the Guardians of the Galaxy 3. I guess, I don't know what you call that. It's a, it's a double sequel. It's a sequel of the sequel. And it was actually better than the first one. Um, so this is a sequel to a, a terrifying night on the lake. And then for Jesus, some good rest, right? And his authority over everything. So we got to remember that storm and how the disciples feared for their lives. And Jesus calms the storm. And what do they say to each other in Mark 4, 41? Just drop that down in there. Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What's the question? Did you catch it? Who is this guy? We thought we knew who he was <laughs> till now. And this is the sequel to that. Their question hangs there. It just kind of hangs over this whole second part of the text today. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? And by the way, that's the question of Mark's gospel from the, from the, from the very beginning. He launched his book with a statement about Jesus' identity. Look at Mark 1.1. I think it'll come up there on the screen. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and who is he? That's an identity statement. This is the beginning of the gospel of King Jesus. And let me tell you who he is. He is the Son of God. That's his identity. And now, that, now his gospel is going to prove it. He's the Lord of all creation. So let's examine the, the cast of characters here in just a moment. We know the truth of who, of who Jesus is, but I want to remind you, this is so important as you read this or you get lost in it, is, is this. We know who Jesus is because we kind of have the last chapter first in Mark's book, right? He opens right up. I'm going to tell you what we're about because Mark's right down to business, no fluff. This, this is the history of King Jesus who is the Son of God. But here's the reality. The characters in the account, in this book, in this letter, don't know and they're learning the whole way. So we gotta we gotta forget what we know and kind of be like the disciples. He's just done this amazing thing on the sea, and we're learning who he really is, and now we're here on the land and we're gonna learn more about his identity. And those villagers are gonna learn about who Jesus is. And a crazy man that lives in a cemetery is gonna learn about who Jesus is. So let's look at this cast of characters. First of all, I see under here is the demons. The demons. So Mark shows this truth in, in, in a clever way. So first I want you to notice what the demons said to Jesus. So Jesus had commanded the unclean spirit to leave the man. Now this is not recorded, it's just mentioned. Before any of this happens, he tells the, the demon to leave the man. And Mark 
5.7, and this is a different translation, but I like it. He said, why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. So it's interesting. The demon immediately knew who Jesus was. Isn't that something? The disciples are just figuring it out. The demoniac has no idea the man himself. They're in a Gentile area, right? And these Gentiles certainly don't know about who Jesus is at all, but the demons know. It's a sad day when the demons know more about Jesus than Jesus' own followers, huh? But, but, but Christ is going to fix that for us here soon. We already saw way back in Mark 1 that a demon in Capernaum synagogue called Jesus the Holy One of God, Mark 1.24. Write that down, Mark 1.24. He says the Holy One of God. Mark 1.34, Mark tells us that the demons, quote, knew him. So the demons always had an understanding of who Jesus is. But this encounter pushes the envelope. Because not only do they know Jesus is the Son of God, but they beg him not to torture them. Now you've got to go to Matthew's Gospel to get the rest of this. So just jot this reference down, Matthew 8.29. And here's what it says. The demons say to Jesus, Have you come to torment us, listen to this, before the, the time. Before the time. So even the demons know that there's an appointment in the future that they're going to answer and that they're going to be in torment, right, and judged by who? By Jesus himself. So he's presented as the one who is more powerful than the most powerful demons. And they recognize that, that one day in an appointed time, which was not that day, they was going to bring him into ever, they were going to, Jesus would bring them into everlasting punishment. He said, are you here to torment us before the time? They even, listen to this, think about this. They even had to ask him for his permission to go into the swine. That tells you a little something about the authority of King Jesus, doesn't it? They had to ask permission. He is depicted as the supreme and singular authority on the coastline. Then nobody has more authority, even in the land of the Gadarenes and the Gentile uh, uh, province of Decapolis than Jesus. So the power of God had been displayed on the water and now God's authority is in him on the land. And by the way, take careful note here who is giving the commands and who is offering the requests. It's the demons that are asking and it's Jesus that's commanding. But I want to make a statement here. You should write this down because there's a lot of bad practices out there. This text is descriptive, not prescriptive. This text describes how Jesus, the Son of God, deals with demons, not how you and I are supposed to deal with demons. Very different. Very different. And I've had, unfortunately, experiences with that. This is, this is not how we do it. This is how Jesus did it. And by the way, I want to tell you something. There's a difference between you and Jesus. All right? Amen. Now, there are some prescriptive texts out there. This is not one of them. And this was a, this was a special uh, representation, I believe. So that's the demon. Let's look at the man. Let's look at the, the man in the story as it concludes with a similar testimony about Jesus' identity. Remember, this is all about who is Jesus. So after these villagers asked Jesus to leave, the man asked Jesus, well, if they don't want you, I'll just go with you. Can I just come with you? And he's denied. 
what do we, why would he do that? Let's look at that in the text. In, in Mark 5, verse 19. I think it'll come up there. Yeah, it's in tiny, but you can see it. Go home to your friends. This is, this is Jesus' answer. And tell them how much the, and underline this in your Bible. What's it say? Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Now, just a real quick uh, statement here. Notice there's a capital L there. Capital L, Lord. And that is a way to, uh, that is a name for God. So you go home and tell all, everybody you know how much God has done for you. That's your job. Don't, I don't want you to come with me. I want you to stay here. Jesus wants this man to praise God for his newfound right-mindedness. And he told the man to go tell other people that it was the Lord God that gets the credit for what happened to you. Now I want you to look at what the man did. This is, this is a, you can read right over this. So the man goes through the whole area of Decapolis, a big area. And notice what he says in Mark 5.20. It says, he went around proclaiming, look at this, how much Jesus had done for him. Now, Jesus said, you go around and you go tell everybody how much, what, who? God had done for you. And he went around telling everybody how much, what? Jesus had done for him. Now, if Jesus is not God, there's a big problem here. Yes. Did you see that connection? This, this is, again, it's all about identity. This is an identity chapter. This is like Mark is all about proving his thesis in Mark 1.1. 1, 1. Jesus is the Son of God. I just find that quite fascinating. Now let's look at the last character. That's Jesus. So Mark wants us to see, though he calmed the storm, uh, through the calm storm and a delivered man, Mark says, look, folks, we're dealing with Jesus. And let me tell you who he is. He's not just a man. He's way more than that. He is God who became one of us. He is the Lord. And that capital L-O-R-D that refers to God refers to Jesus. Creation's chaos on the lake and humanity's brokenness on the shore both find their healing in the God-man. Did you hear that? Creation's chaos on the lake and humanity's brokenness on the shore both find their healing in the God-man, Jesus Christ. The disciples thought they were going to buy it that night on the lake. But Jesus was not going to go out by the way of nature. This man was an extremely broken human being. But Jesus is not just another in a long line of broken people that are without hope. You see, he's also setting apart the difference, the stark difference between Jesus and these people. Jesus came to renew creation and humanity. He enters our broken world. And we start here. We've got to start here. The identity of Jesus at this, this penultimate point because it is this emphasis upon which the other points are built. And if we don't get this one, we're not going to get the rest. If you don't know who you're dealing with in Jesus, you, if you get his identity wrong, 
you'll never tap into the next two emphasis that Mark has for us. So who is Jesus? The Son of God. God the Son. Lord of creation, Lord of heaven, Lord of earth, and certainly Lord over demons. And number two is the missiological emphasis. Did you see the word missions in there? What do we learn about Jesus' mission? What was Jesus doing? What was he after? Well, how many people does he cross the Sea of Galilee for? One. One man. How much sense does that make? How many did he leave on the shore of the Sea of Galilee? It, yeah, that's exactly right, Tom. If we read that text properly, he left thousands who wanted to hear him, and he goes away from his people, the Jews, to the Gentile province for how many people? Leaves a thousands of people for one. Let me put it this way. He, he, he leaves, he leaves a, a, an evangelistic outreach of thousands to go bring the good news to one man. That doesn't make sense unless you understand who the good shepherd is because the good shepherd had a lost sheep on the other side of Galilee and he went over there to rescue him. You see, the good shepherd leaves the 99 and he goes what? He finds the one that wandered off. And he invites the disciples to go with him to the other side of the lake. They went. They got there. He delivered the man. And then what did they do? They went back home. They went back to Capernaum. Here's the bottom line. Jesus' whole existence is his mission. He's all about his mission. That he came to seek and to save, Luke says, that which is lost. And that's you and I. And this one man was apparently of immense value to Christ. Now, I don't know how much of that Jesus was aware of as he was crossing that sea. We know there's a strange snippet in John where John said, Jesus is revealing to them, he's like, where are you getting your marching orders from, basically? And I'm, I'm terribly paraphrasing. And Jesus says, well, for me, it kind of works like this. I look and see what the Father's doing, and then I do what he's doing. So, so the Father tells Jesus through the Spirit what to do. Go over to this area. And he is obedient. And one man's life is changed. Jesus made it abundantly clear how, how valuable this one man's life was to him. And he put his value way over the value of those pigs. 2,000 pigs were nowhere near the value of one man's soul. Jesus put people over pigs. It appears that the people of that area did the opposite. And, 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 and understanding that, Think about that. 2,000. I mean, this, was a, this was a large financial loss. And it's, all, it's also a message for us of what really matters at the end of the day. But did Jesus really do this for one man? Yes and no. Because here's the reality. What did we just come off of in Mark 4? Jesus is talking about the seed 
And the seed works, the seed of the kingdom, right? The kingdom gospel. And this man was a seed that Jesus was planting in the soil of Decapolis. And what does the Bible say he did? He went all over saying, you're not going to believe what Jesus did for me. I was the crazy guy that lived in a cemetery. Look, I'm on right mind. I'm clothed. I'm back home. I'm a productive member of society. And I'm going to tell you something. Everybody knew about him. Everybody knew about the story of the pigs running off the cliff into the water. So when this guy rolled into town, do you think people listened? You better believe it. Now, this wasn't a job that this guy wanted, by the way. He, want, he would rather have gone with Jesus. Now, this is interesting. The demon's request was granted. The disgruntled local's request of Jesus to leave, that was granted. But the demoniac turned disciple's request was denied. And by the way, whenever God tells you no, there's a good reason for it. Now, you may not understand it. And can I say this? You might not even understand it later on. But trust God that he's got a good purpose in all of his no's. He wanted to get in that boat with Jesus, but Jesus refused and instead sent him to testify of what God had done to him, to all of his family and friends. This man was a seed that Jesus planted. Right there in Decapolis, a Gentile area, this man went and declared to everyone who would listen who Jesus was and what was done for him. Now, this is cool. And you, you pick this up in the book of Acts. Eventually, after Jesus died and rose again and ascended into heaven, the church was going to spread out with the gospel. And where do you think they're eventually, the gospel is going to eventually be taken? Decapolis. And you know what we find out? This is an interesting record. That when they arrived in Decapolis in that region... You know what they found? They found very fertile soil. These people were ready for the rest of the gospel. Why? You know what this man had done for that year and a half? He had done nothing but till the ground with his story. Let me tell you who Jesus is. Let me tell you what Jesus did for me. And then all of a sudden, a year and a half, two years later, some people come to town and said, let me tell you the rest of the story about Jesus. Fertile ground, and that whole area is evangelized. Does God know what he's doing or what? Yeah. Jesus has a mission. And what should our response be to that? Our response is, if that's Jesus' mission, to seek and to save the lost, we should probably be on mission with him. I like how one writer put it. He said, you are not meant to be a cul-de-sac of God's grace. You aren't a dead end at the end of his cross. Amen? We're, we're a flow through. We're an interstate with lots of exits. We're meant to bring the story of Jesus to those that we know and that we love. So it helps us to see not only the, the identity, a Christological emphasis, but a missional emphasis. What was Jesus about? And what... By, by, by extension should our lives be about and that brings us to the last one and that's a therapeutic emphasis in other words what do we learn about Jesus help for us therapeutic uh, I call this a so what at the end of the day so are there some lessons we can also glean from this in our relationship with Christ and I, I think there is Maybe the first one is that there's no place that Jesus won't go. Aren't you glad for that? 
There's no place he won't go. And there's no place that he can't be successful. He comes to this man. 2 Corinthians 5.17 If anyone be in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is past and the new has come. Boy, could you see that not walked out in this guy's life? Instead of running around naked like a raving lunatic, he's sitting, not running. He's clothed, not naked. And instead of being insane, he's in his right mind. And I know you sit here today and think, well, I'm way better off than that guy. Not really. Not really. I know many people that run around like crazy folks. They think they're clothed, but they are so exposed in their sin. Right? And they are not in their right mind. The gospel can change them just like it did him. He's here to help us. All things are new. Nothing could stop Jesus from reaching this guy. And Jesus isn't afraid of the darkest parts of humanity, including the darkest parts of you. Did you hear that? He's not afraid of the darkest parts of you. Because Jesus has been through a darker hell than hopefully you will ever know. And you know what he's afraid of? Nothing. Because he's the Lord over all of it. There's no case too hard for Jesus. Here's another thing I think we see there. Nobody else could calm or help this guy. I mean, he tried to help himself. Did it work? Nope. Uh, his community tried to help him by binding him. Did, that, did it work? No. Only Jesus could help him. Everybody else tried. They did their best and they failed. This guy was still overwhelmed. Think of Paul, jotted down Romans 7, 19. I want to do good, but I don't. And what I don't want to do, and I don't want to do what's wrong, but I do it anyway. Anybody relate to that? We get Paul, don't we? But Paul's the also, also the one who says a few verses later in Romans 7, 24 to 25, who, thank, thank God for Jesus, who will, who will free me from the life that is dominated by sin and death. Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus is our freedom today. But how does he help us? Let me wrap it up and, and, and give you five, five ways I think that, that right now Jesus is our aid. And we should be glad for this today. Just like this man. Number one, Jesus intercedes for you. The Bible tells us that he is at the right hand of the Father ever making intercession for the saints. Notice it doesn't say the sinners. Because when his, when his identity becomes your identity, your identity changes from sinner to saint. He intercedes for you, Hebrews 7, 25. Even when you don't know it or aren't aware of it. Aren't you glad for that? Jesus has your back. And he does it for you even in your ignorance. I'm thankful for that. Number two, oh, this is a good one. Jesus reminds you of who you are. Just as this, is, this text and the one before it were identity texts, really that's what Mark's whole gospel is an identity gospel. Who is Jesus? He lets a cat out of the bag in verse 1, but he says, let me show it to you. And let me show you how his disciples and those that followed him near and far applied this to their life. 
He reminds you of who you are, your identity. Notice when Jesus came to this guy, he asked him, what is your name? And who answers? The demons. Now, did that guy have a name? Sure he did. But listen to me, listen to me. The identity of the man had been lost in the identity of the demons that had haunted him. And I've known a ton of people who are in the same condition. You are known more. You, could, you look at yourself and you see your sin more than you can see a Savior. And if we're not careful, some sins can, can, can so overwhelm us, they become our identity. And Jesus reminds this man, Legion, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to the, to the man you are unlawfully inhabiting. I want to know his name. I know yours. I want to know his name. And what was he doing? He was reminding the man that there, there's somewhere deep down inside of you, you are different than what you're expressing and what's being exposed to and through you. And saint of God this morning, we need to be reminded of who we are. We are not who we were. You are who you are. I love how the old preacher put it. I'm not who I want to be, but praise God, I'm not who I was. Amen? You are called by a new name because of Jesus Christ. And often when in our wrong mind we believe the wrong things about us, things that are contrary to the gospel, Jesus reminds us who we are. We're his. And we're new. Number three, Jesus demonstrates his power towards you. You say, how does he do that? Through his death, burial, and resurrection and ascension. He reminds you of his power. Because a far greater victory than, than, than Jesus showed when the pigs ran down the hill into the water was when he came up out of that grave the third day. Amen? His cross and an empty grave are meant to remind you of the radical and powerful victory he won by delivering you from your brokenness and sin. Amen, church? He reminds you. Number four, I love this. Jesus clothes you with his righteousness. Jesus clothes you with his righteousness, his rightness, and his acceptance before God. And just like he clothed that man, he clothes you and I. I love that concept that we are clothed, and to be clothed means to be covered. And one of the things I taught the children at camp this year was the reason we wear clothes. Did you know that the reason that we wear clothes is found in Genesis? Because we didn't wear clothes at the beginning. The reason we wear clothes is because of sin. To cover and hide our shame. But right there in Genesis, God says, sins are not to be covered. They're not to be hidden. They're to be cleansed. And the wages of sin is what, church? Death. And oh, he, he reminds us that through his death, we get his righteousness. He cleans you and deposits his perfection into your mind and your body, and he makes us right with God. I love how Paul says it, almost like offhanded. He said, and we have the mind of Christ. Oh, and by the way, he says, yeah, and we have the mind of Christ. We have, an, we have his perfect record. And then the last one is that Jesus sends you out to tell your story, to testify. And that's what he sent this guy out to do. What has he done for you? 
This man was far from perfect, and, and he had no degree in theology. I mean, he had just come from living in a cemetery for years. He was far from perfect, but he could tell people what Jesus had done for him, and we could do the same. And the question is, when's the last time you told someone what Jesus did for you? When's the last time you thought about what Jesus has done for you? Or maybe I should ask this question, what has Jesus done for you? Is it just a concept that you listen to on Sunday, or is it real? Is it impacting your life? Has he made a difference? The late Vance Habner said this, the gospel is not a secret to be hoarded, but a story to be heralded. Amen? I love that. The gospel is not a secret to be hoarded, but a story to be heralded. I want to I give you an encouragement today. Um, I want you to go home, and this week before your DLT group, where we're going to apply this teaching to our lives today, I want you to, to do a couple of things. Number one is I want you to tell somebody your story. I want you to be like this demoniac, former demoniac, turned disciple. And can I ask a question? When's the last time you told someone your story? We, we got to find our voice. This guy wanted to go with Jesus. Jesus said, no, you need to plow some soil here. And boy, he did. And what a harvest was reaped just a few years later. But that wouldn't have happened if this man wasn't obedient. We are told to go and tell. Go tell your story this week. Remind yourselves of those practical truths at the end of what Jesus had done for you. I want you to get up in the morning. I want you to picture yourself clothed in the righteousness of Christ, in the robe of his perfection. As you're getting dressed in the morning, as you're putting on your own clothes, I want you to, to, to get yourself into the mental habit of remind yourself, I am putting on Jesus today. I am clothed in the perfection of Christ, which makes me right with God. And when the Father looks at me, he sees me through the, through the righteous, the perfection of his Son. Jesus got my terrible record, and I got his perfect record. And I am a saint because of what Jesus had done for me, the death, burial, and resurrection of King Jesus. Remind yourself of who you are, and then go out and tell somebody what you've reminded yourself of. And how that can be a reality them. Amen? Because at the end of the day, folks, it is all about grace. God's grace. And my question is, have you experienced it? Has he changed and touched your life? Now you might hopefully not have been running around naked, cutting yourself, screaming, living in the graveyard. Right? You say, well, I'm not that bad. No, you know what? We're a lot worse than that. Because we come up with clean ways to cover it but we're still just as broken without them. Amen? Yeah. May God wake us up to that reality. We might declare, go tell everyone what wonderful things the Lord has done for us. It's not a suggestion. Pretty sure that one was a command. Amen? Maybe you're here today saying, so you know what, I just, I know Jesus intellectually. I don't really know him personally. Today's the day. So what I got to do? <laughs> First of all, you got to own that fact. And you got to admit your brokenness. That you're in trouble without him. I need to come to him in faith. Say, I trust in what you did for me. 
and, and I'm going to live it out, even if family doesn't understand and friends don't understand. I, I, I'm going to live right because of what Jesus did for me. I'm going to walk in. I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to break up with sin, and I'm going to. I'm going to. I'm going to come into a covenant relationship with Jesus, and He's going to live through me. That's what you need to do today.